Good morning, church. My name is Michael Lowther, and today I will be doing the scripture reading. We are doing 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the world, the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Thank you, Micah. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we pray that the, the glory of Jesus would be manifest to us in our hearts and minds, that we'd understand um, the greatness of Christ. And so speak to us, Lord, this morning, and uh, we pray in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Let's hear it for Troy. So as long as we're making adjustments, can we move that clock over like about six inches that way? Otherwise, we're in trouble is what I'm saying. Um, so in 1995, there was a, uh, a singer, Joan Osborne, um, who had a, a hit song that it asked a, a, some pretty important questions, probably the most important questions. I, I've referenced this, this song before, but it, it bears repeating. But the lyrics of the song go like this. And this again, this was on pop radio. If God had a name, what would it be? And what would you call it to his face? If you were faced with him in all his glory, what would you ask if you had just one question? Yeah, God is great. Yeah, yeah, God is good. What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. Well, the truth of the matter is that Joan Osborne, wittingly or not, she really put her finger precisely on the central issue of Christmas, the central issue of the gospel. And the very center of Christmas is God becoming one of us. And last week I argued that many people, perhaps most people, have staked out what they consider to be a measured, kind of a moderate uh, opinion of Jesus. They're, they're not against him. In fact, they're intrigued by him. Uh, they admire him, perhaps. They, they may even put into practice some of his teachings and uh, they may even defend him against, you know, atheists or whatever. But if you ask them if they love him and if they love him more than they love their parents and their children, and if they've given everything up to follow him, they would look at you like you're a few cards short of a deck. You know what I'm saying? Like, that seems extreme. Love him more than what? 
And yet that's exactly what Jesus demands of us. He claims to be worthy of such devotion. And so either he is worthy of our highest love, of our greatest love, and of our complete surrender to him, or he's a madman worthy of scorn and derision. There is no in-between. There's no moderate middle. It does not exist. It's irrational. It's Doobie Brothers theology. Since we're going with pop songs <laughs> to illustrate the sermon this morning, the Doobie Brothers. Y'all remember the Doobie Brothers? Anybody? Doobie Brothers fans? Oh, black water, keep on rolling. Okay, so they had a, they had a pretty big hit song. It was in the early 70s. And it said, Jesus is just all right with me. Jesus is just all right. Oh, yeah. I don't care what they may say. I don't care what they may do. I don't care what they may say. Jesus is just all right with me. Oh, yeah. Now, I know I researched this song a little bit this week, and it turns out it was written by a, a Christian gospel writer in the 60s and was considered a gospel song. And numerous people recorded it, including the Doobie Brothers, and they, they had the biggest hit with it. And at Doobie Brothers concerts, there would be Christians. This is back in the Jesus movement times. Christians would be at their concerts, and all the Christians would be holding up the one-way sign, you know, through Jesus. And, and uh, one of the guys from the Doobie Brothers is talking in this article, and he's going, we didn't know what they were doing, you know, when that was happening. And then they started throwing New Testaments up on stage at us, you know. So the Christians are going, yeah, this is a worship song, you know. You guys are our guys, you know. And uh, the Doobie Brothers had no one, you know, thought of it being a Christian song even. And I don't think it, it you know, if, if this was a proper worship song or Christian song, it wouldn't be Jesus is just all right with me. It would be Jesus is everything to me. So the true nature and identity of Jesus has been speculated about and, and attacked really from the beginning. Um, and interestingly, in the first and second centuries, uh, the attack was mainly not on his deity, but on his humanity. People questioned, his hum was he really a human? Was he really physical and material? Because Gnostics in that time, they held the belief that matter, material, was evil. It was polluted and evil. And so spirit, the spirit realm was good. And so, so they had to do something to account for the humanity and the apparent physicality of Jesus Christ. And so one school of thought said that, well, Jesus only seemed to have a body. Uh, he didn't really, it wasn't really material. So when he walked, he didn't even leave footprints, kind of like a ghost or something like that. And so another school of thought taught that uh, the divine Christ spirit was separate from the physical Christ. And so the divine Christ spirit came on Jesus at his baptism and then left at his crucifixion. And so these inventions uh, of thought were to accommodate the, the unbiblical idea that matter is somehow, you know, evil. And so in reality, you know, there is no more important issue than who Jesus actually is. There's none in all of life.
And so what you believe about Jesus, that will determine your eternity. So the Bible reveals that Jesus is 100% God. Absolutely God. However, he is simultaneously 100% human. 100% human. Now I know some of you are very mathematically oriented and you're going, wait a minute, fatness. Doesn't quite add up. 100% is, well, 100%. There is no more than that. When it comes to Jesus, there is. He is 100% God, 100% man. J.I. Packer said it like this, quote, here are two mysteries for the price of one, the plurality of purses, persons within the unity of God. So in other words, three persons in one God and the union of the Godhead and manhood in the person of Jesus Christ. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. Well, let's read our verses one more time here. Actually, let's not for time's sake. Uh, I'm just going to start to unpack our four verses with you. And so the first thing uh, that I want to bring out from 1 John 1 is his deity. John points to his deity quite clearly. Verse 1, that which was from the beginning, he says. That, meaning Jesus. He's talking about Jesus, obviously. And he says he was from the beginning. Now, he doesn't say that which began to be at a certain point. He says that which was from the beginning. So the beginning that John is writing about here is not the beginning of the world, the beginning of the creation. Um, he's referring to the beginning spoken of in Genesis 1.1 and in his gospel, John 1.1. He's talking about a time before there was time. He's talking about a time before there was material, before there was an earth, a universe, and all the rest. So there was a time before there were all these things. And that's what John is talking about here. A time before there was anything, when all that existed was God himself. The beginning of Genesis 1.1, you all know it's very simple. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the beginning, uh, you know, and that's very simple, but the, uh, John 1.1 1, 1 is a little more profound. He says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John takes us back to this time in eternity past to meet the one who was from the beginning, before there was time. So John's implication about Jesus is that he was eternal and therefore God because he existed before all else and was the source and the basis uh, of the existence of all things. That Jesus is the source of all things. John 1.3, all things were made through him, through Jesus. Paul takes it further. Of course, we'll dive into this in a deep way in Colossians next month. But all things, Colossians 1.16, were created through him and for him. So not only is he the creator of all things, but all things exist for him, for Jesus. All things were made through him. What, what, are, what are the all made things? 
everything other than God. That's what Jesus created. Everything other than God. God is the only uncreated being. Greek philosophers in that day, they taught that there were two distinct worlds. One was the material world, which you could experience with your senses, which was wonderful in its own way, but it was really, they considered it to be filled with shadows and kind of unrealities. But the second world was the unseen world, and they considered that to be the real world. So everything on earth, they thought, the material world, was a poor pale copy of the great reality, which was the unseen world. So to the Greeks, the unseen world was the real world, and the seeable world was a shadowy copy of the original. Plato, the philosopher, wrote about it in his Doctrines of Forms and Ideas. And, and he supposed that the unseen world, it contained a pattern to everything. And thus the things of the material world were, were based off of these patterns in the unseen realm. And the great reality, the supreme idea the pattern of all patterns, the form of all forms, was God. And so the problem in Plato's mind and many of the philosophers' mind was how do you get past the shadows and the copies to get to the reality, to God? How can you get there? How can you get to God? And so John declares that you don't have to get to God because God in Christ has come to you. Jesus is reality come to earth. It, John declares uh, often in his, uh, in his gospel, he uses the Greek word alithanos to describe Jesus. We, it comes across in most of our Bibles as true. So for instance, uh, uh, John 1, 9, Jesus is the true light, the true light. In John 6, 32, Jesus is the true bread. John 15, 1, Jesus is the true vine. So you could translate it as real. Jesus is the real light. He's the real bread, the real vine. And so if you follow that line of thinking, then every action that Jesus did was not only an action in time in this material world, but it also opened up a window to the eternal reality of the other world. This is what John means when he talks about Jesus' miracles as signs. They're windows into eternal reality. Well, to John, a miracle was never an isolated act. It was a window into what Jesus always was, always is, always did, and always does. Jesus is the ultimate reality. When he fed the 5,000, he then followed it with a teaching of being the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And so 
He didn't just feed a multitude. He demonstrated that he is the real bread, the eternal bread. When he healed the blind man, he then taught that he was the light of the world. So he didn't merely heal one man's blindness. He demonstrated that he is eternally the light of all men. You see. Jesus didn't claim to merely have the truth or know the truth. He claimed to be the truth. He is reality. However you, you know, whatever narrative you have in your mind about what life is and, you know, and the world and humanity and the future and all the rest, the, the real narrative has to be found in who Jesus is. And if you don't find your narrative, a lot of people call it a worldview, then it's not, re it's not a true worldview. It's false. Jesus existed as God, the creator of all things, before there was anything created. So simply put, he is God. So his deity, John points it out, but secondly, his humanity. Again, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was manifest, we've seen it, we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So John goes to great lengths here to establish this this being who existed from eternity past in a time where there was time and establishes that he was physical, touchable, seeable, hearable, and completely human. So this is in opposition to what the Gnostics were saying, who were saying that matter was evil. Jesus had to be fully human. Now, I, I say that, it sounds hyperbolic, but it's, it's true. Why? Why did Jesus have to be fully human? Why couldn't he, you know, come like a, as an angel or, or like a superhero or an alien or whatever? You know, why did he have to be 100% a, a human being like we are? Why did he have to have a human body and human emotions and experience human pain and human limitations and have human problems? Why did he have to be conceived in a womb and be born as an infant and be fed from his mother's breast and learn to walk and, you know, fall down and bonk his head like our grandchildren are starting to do now? Welcome to life, honey. Why did this being from eternity have to grow in knowledge and stature and wisdom like other people? Now, there's a number of ways we could tackle this question, but I, I felt, and this may seem like it gets a little theological, but theology's good. <laughs> So I want to look at this through the lens of Romans 5 because this paints a broad stroke with theological precision and it helps us understand why did Jesus, why did the Savior, 
Why did God have to save us through a human? Why did this person, God, have to become a real human being? Why? Well, Romans 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Moses to Adam, even over whose, uh, those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now there's a lot of depth in that, those few verses, but I'm going to try and <clears throat> simplify all of that for us. But I think a tough question that people ask, and I think it's a fair question, uh, was it fair for God to condemn all people because of one person's sin? I mean, is that fair? Maybe you've wondered in your own heart, you know, I, I didn't sin in the garden, and, and, and I didn't ask to be born. And, and is it really fair for everyone to get blamed for one person's sin? And most of us have probably had the experience in school. Maybe it was a, on the team or in the class or whatever. And the coach or the teacher, uh, you know, did something uh, wrong and, and, and they can't figure out who it is. So they threaten to punish the whole class or the whole team unless the person who did it comes forth and, and confesses, right? And, and everybody's like, oh, you can, no way, that's not fair. And you, you f begin to feel the, the, the gross injustice of it all. How could I be punished when I know, you know, somebody else did this thing? And you become indignant at that. Was it fair for God to condemn the whole world for the disobedience of one man? Well... Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because, here it is, all sinned. And you go, okay, what does that mean, all Yes, we have all sinned, but we had to get born and you know, and then at some point, sin. What, what does it mean, all sinned? When Paul says all sinned here in Romans 5, he means all sinned in Adam. All sinned, all of us sinned in Adam. Now, this might tweak your brain a little bit here, but he is saying essentially that we were all in Adam, that we all came from Adam. Adam literally means humanity. And quite literally, all humanity sinned in the garden. We were all there in the sense that he is the source, the one man from whom all humanity came. Are you tracking with that? So he's representative of all humanity, of all humans who have ever lived and who currently live right now. They all came, we all came from Adam. So... Lots of people think, you know, way to go, Adam. You blew it, dude. You know, they blame Adam for blowing it, and they blame uh, Noah for not killing those two flies. Um, 
And you think, I could have done better. I could have done better if I was there. I mean, I, I want to give an in and eaten the forbidden fruit. Really? Let's, let's lay aside the fact that we were there in the sense that we were contained in Adam's DNA. Adam was a sparkly brand new human. He didn't have time to pick up any bad habits or come from a dysfunctional family or get screwed up in life, right? And so he was fresh, untainted, the perfect representative for us. Now, I, I've probably illustrated this way before, but I think it communicates. So, so if we got to pick the basketball team to send to the Olympics uh, at the next Summer Olympics, and we could choose any basketball team, you know, any player from America that, uh, that we wanted to, and it could be from any era, and, and, and it would be the person at their prime. So we could go back into the 60s, 70s, 80s and pick our team. And they would, each player would be at their prime, at their peak. And so if it were me, I would probably pick Michael Jordan, absolutely. And then I would probably go with Magic. Yeah, yeah. And probably Kobe and probably Kareem. I know it's getting a little Laker heavy right now, but <laughs> this is my illustration, so... Too bad for you. And, and okay, I'll throw you a bone. So, so I, I'm a Steph Curry fan. So I put in Steph Curry there. Sorry, LeBron. But I put in Steph Curry. And we send, that's our team that we're sending to the summer, next Summer Olympics to play basketball. And they play uh, Mauritania or somebody like that. And they get beat. Well... We sent our champions. And you may think, well, couldn't they have done better? I could have done better if I, you could have done better than Jordan and Kobe and Magic. And... No, you couldn't. Not even close. And what happened to them happened to us. They got beat. They represented us, which means we got beat. Listen, folks, Adam and Eve were the dream team. They got beat in the garden. Adam represented us, and we could have done no better. And in a very real sense, we were in Adam anyway. We were there. So I need you to see something here. Um, individual sinning is not in view here in, in what Paul's talking about in Romans 5. So let me put it in point form. Um, death is proof that we all sin in Adam. Because some of you are going, I, 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 need more, I, I need more behind this idea that I was in Adam sinning. Okay, so death is proof that you were. Again, Romans 5, verse 12, therefore, just as sin came the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned in Adam. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there's no law. Yet, 
death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of one who was to come. So the question arises, how can you prove that we are racially linked to Adam, that we were in Adam, that we sinned in him? How do we know that we're really, you know, a part uh, of Adam and what he did? Well, the answer is, is very clear. And the argument is, is simply this, everyone dies. In every culture, in every nation, in every era, everyone dies. But death is the result of disobeying the law. But there was no law from Adam to Moses. The law had not been given. Moses had not scaled the heights of Sinai to receive the law of God. No commandments uh, existed at that point. And yet men still died. People died. Read the Old Testament genealogies, and, and with the exception of Enoch, and, and you'll see that every person who came on the scene died. The earth is one giant graveyard. Billions of people buried and have gone to dust over time. Did they die because they broke the law? Well, in the, uh, before Moses, no. Because there was no law to break before Moses. That's what Paul's getting at. If you, if you go out on I-84 after church today and you press hard on the old gas and you're going 100 miles an hour, maybe pretty soon you're going to see lights flashing behind you. And you're going to get pulled over and you're going to be in a lot of trouble. Why? Because you broke the law. You broke the law. Now, if you go to Germany and get on the Autobahn and go ahead and press down the gas and go 100 miles an hour, no problemo in Germany. Why? Because there's no law. There's no speed limit on the Autobahn. Where there is no law, the law can't be broken. And yet death happened to all these people from Adam to Moses before there ever was a law to be broken. Paul says, because men died even before the law was given, it had to be Adam's sin, which caused death to come to everyone. It's the, that's the explanation. A general result demands a general cause. What's the cause? the disobedience of Adam. Adam sinned and he ultimately died. All of his descendants died before the law was given. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, in Adam all die. So why does Paul kind of zero in all of this attention on one representative human? <laughs> because now he turns his attention to the other representative human, Jesus Christ, and what his actions have done for humanity. Paul explains that the obedience of Christ is the remedy for the disobedience of Adam. 
because he wants us to see that the gospel is not limited to any one people group or any one place or any one period of time or history, but it's relevant and essential for all people in all places at all times. The damage done by Adam's sin, it affects every human being in every place at all times, but the obedience of Jesus Christ and the, the imputing of his righteousness to all who believe is the remedy for the, the damage that Adam has, has done. That's why we go into all the world and we preach the gospel, okay? It's because all humans need Jesus to save them because they're in Adam. There's no other remedy. There's no other salvation. This is why God became one of us. Now, one more thought. And we'll be done. What we gain in Jesus beats what we lost in Adam. And this, there's a, there's a phrase that pops out in Romans 5 a, a number of times. But it's the phrase much more, much more. And the basic point is this. In Christ, we don't just gain back what was lost in the fall, but we gain back much more, much more. So Romans 5.15, the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of, uh, of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So much more, much more, much more is what is gained in Christ. We usually think in mathematical terms. We think, man, if, if Adam took us to a minus 10, well, then Jesus, you know, gave us plus 10, and we end up somewhere around even. So we're, we're somewhere where Adam was in the beginning, you know, when he was created before he fell. Not even close. The equation is if Adam took us to a minus 10, then Jesus takes us to a plus 10 billion. That's the idea. Grace is imparted to us via Jesus and his righteousness, which results in eternal life. So think about this. If you have an infinite number and you subtract any finite number from the infinite number, what does it equal? So infinity minus 10 billion equals infinity. By definition, infinity cannot be diminished. Otherwise, it would not be infinite, right? 
And so the very meaning of infant is that when you take something from it, there is no less than, than with what you began. So, so that wonderful verse in Amazing Grace is utterly accurate. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. In the life to come, every passing day or century or millennium will mean that the amount of future left for us is not diminished. It is never diminished. In this life, every day that goes by is one day less that we have left to live. And it just clicks by one day at a time. Boom. Boom. Bam. My number's getting kind of small. I noticed. I'm in way down from the five digit numbers. No, I'm not. Maybe I am. I don't know. But every day we live is one day less we have left. Eternal life means every day we live in eternity, there is the same infinite future ahead of us. Now, why is this important? Well, because Romans 5, it begins and ends with two of these massive infinite realities that kind of help explain each other. First, an inf infinite reality is infinite life. That's what eternal life means. It means infinite, never-ending life. Now, now is, this, is this infinite, boring life, right? Because right now, you and I, we have to deal with some boredom. We have to deal, we have to deal with issues that are associated with this life. And so, so is this ordinary life that we experience now just, just stretched out forever? Yes. And if we extended our lives as they are now forever, that might not be a very exciting prospect for some of us. It's like, eh, no, not interested. What's the best we can do in this life, Right? I mean, what's the greatest day? Is it Christmas at Disneyland or something? I don't know. Or on the beach? I don't know. What is it? Golfing? Some beautiful golf course somewhere? I was talking to a friend after church last week, and he had just been on a golfing trip, and, and he said, man... He was in Mexico, and he says, man, I am so sick of golf right now. <laughs> and he was dead serious, too. He's like, man, I am so ready to be back to work. But it's true. What do you do? I mean, if it's infinite life in, this, in our current situation, what do you do after the 10,000th round of golf? You'll be just, boom, with the club on your head, just, this is why the other infinite reality, which is found at the beginning of the chapter, is so crucial. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Here it is. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. 
the glory of God, the kabod, the weightiness, the substance of who God is. Instead of saying our, we rejoice in hope of eternal life, Paul says, no, our hope is in the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because this is the reason that, that our future life must be eternal and why it cannot possibly be boring. It will be impossible for there to be boredom when we are experiencing the glory of our God. Any amount of time short of eternity would be inadequate for a finite creature to experience the glory of the infinite God. It'll take forever to see, literally, to see all that there is to see and experience all there is to experience and enjoy all there is to enjoy of the glory of God. Therefore, God ordains for us that we have eternal, never-ending life with which to do it. Now, what is the glory of God? Well, I mean... We have to put it in practical terms on this side. And I know we, many of us have experienced the glory of God in worship and we felt his presence. And yes, that's the glory of God. But we can also take it into the more mundane. When you sit down for lunch and you bite into that. What are y'all going to eat for lunch today? Somebody, anybody? Call it out. A burrito, all right? Let's just go Mexican. You're going to eat that burrito, and that first bite is just going to explode. That cheese and the meat and the hopefully hot sauce and salt. Just, oh, it's so good. That's the glory of God. He's given us all things richly to be enjoyed, all good gifts come down from heaven from the Father of lights. And so every experience of pleasure properly, properly enjoyed, I need to say that because everything can be taken and distorted and mangled and sinned with, but every pleasure is a foretaste of glory divine. It's from God. That's why we can be ever cognizant of the Lord in his presence because we interact with his good gifts every day, all day. Well, so this will not be endless duration of boring life. It will not be a repetition of old ecstasies and joys. It'll be ever new sights and wonders and experiences and pleasures and so on. This is why Jesus had to become a human. He had to become a human to make a way for dead people, people who sinned in Adam and who were dead spiritually and on their way to death physically so that they could be brought into this infinite, glorious, joyful life with God. And that's the story of Christmas, gang. This is the heart of Christmas. And I know I said three points and I've given you two, so here's the last point. His aim in all of this is our joy. We are writing these things to you so that your joy would be complete. So Christian, it doesn't matter what's going on out there in the world. You can be the happiest, most joyful person 
because of what we know to be true about us and about our future because of Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice in you at this Christmas time, knowing that it's a lot more than just the, um, the traditions and the gifts and the trees and the family and, and all of that, which we're grateful for all of that, Lord, but we know there's a much more profound thing that Christmas is pointing us to. What if God was one of us? And Lord, you are one of us. Jesus, you became a human being and were placed in the womb of that teenage girl 2,000 years ago. We're born in a manger and grew up in a rural area there in northern Israel and grew in wisdom and stature and in physical strength just like the other kids. But then you began to preach about your kingdom and you began to do miracles opening up the eyes of the blind, healing deaf people, raising dead people to life, casting demons out, commanding nature, walking on water, stilling the storm, and on and on. Claiming to be God incarnate, and the one who would come to save us. So Lord, we fix our eyes on you this Christmas season. And Lord, this morning as we come to the table, we pray that you would, Lord, wash us and cleanse us of any sins we may have committed this past week. Lord, if we've been ungracious with our words, um, unkind or untruthful, Wash us and cleanse us, Lord, from the pollution of our sin. If we, uh, Lord, have been maybe doing things, Lord, in secret, because we're ashamed of these things, and maybe we're struggling with getting free from these things. God, we pray that you would bring freedom this morning and that you'd break those chains and, um, and the voice of the devil who condemns us and says there's no way out and it's too shameful and which are all lies. Lord, you, you bore our guilt and shame upon the cross and so we have the freedom to come to you and confess this morning. Lord, whatever else, if we've been contemplating things that we know are wrong, um, God, we pray for your grace and help, Lord, to readjust our thinking, that we would be able to press forward towards the mark of the prize of the upward call in Christ. 
So meet us at the table this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Y'all can get up and make your way to one of the tables, and then Pastor Jeff is going to come up and lead us in communion and, and, uh, and perhaps give those of you who maybe haven't accepted Christ a chance to do so. So yeah, we've uh, set up the auditorium a little different, so the communion stations are on the outside edges there, and the ushers are available to help you with that. What a great message today, right? This is, for those of you maybe at home and maybe you're watching this later than this morning, and maybe you haven't believed until this moment that the story of Christmas about Jesus and his, his mission is to save us through his sinless life and substitutionary death, just meaning that he traded our sin for his righteousness on that cross. So if, if you're believing that today for the first time, uh, let me lead you in a, in, a, in a quick prayer to just vocalize that. In Romans it says that if you believe in your heart and, and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that you'll be saved. And so um, we'll do that in prayer now for those of you, whether at home or here. Jesus, I, I believe that you did incarnate, that you came to this earth at a virgin birth in Jerusalem and Bethlehem all those, all those years ago, Lord, and, and you spread your ministry to, to save us, to draw us to you, Lord, because the truth is we couldn't come to you. So, so Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you're my Lord and Savior. Help me, to, help me to live for you, Lord, from this day forward. It's in your name I pray. Amen. And so as we take communion, we, we remember his death, the completion of that, of that mission to, to trade our sin for his righteousness. And so Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he blessed it and, and he gave it to his disciples. And so we'll do the same thing. Jesus, we, we thank you for the, for the blessing of your, of your sacrifice for our sin. We, we, bless, we bless this bread that we know that it's representative of your body. So as we partake, Lord, we, we, we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. And Jesus explained on that night that, that the cup was... The cup of his, his blood, which was the new covenant, which means that all that, that he came for, the completion of that, the, the trading of our sin for his righteousness would be represented in this cup and that he would take, he wouldn't drink of this cup until he came again. And so, so we remember that and we look forward to that until he comes. And so Jesus, we, we thank you and bless you for your, your blood that was poured out for us, that we that we remember at this time as we partake. And so we, we, we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake.